0: Our New Testament reading is from John 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When, they ran out of, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it out, so they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted, the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and said to him, everyone who serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. For revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and ask you give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. Um, As was said earlier, my name is Will Stockdale, uh, and I am very grateful to be able to be with you all This morning, uh, as was mentioned, I'm a teaching elder in the PCA. I serve with a ministry called Ministry to State that is a pastoral and discipleship ministry for men and women working in government. Particularly, I focus on staffers working in the Senate. A Couple things, I've gotten to know some of you over the years. I've been in D.C. for about three and a half years. I first got to know uh, your Deacon, Kyle Lee, then I got to know Luke, and then Liam, and then Peter, and Zane so I, I could list more people, uh, but it's good to have met you guys. Uh, I'm also especially grateful to this congregation because your pastor, Reverend Dr. Brian Lee, who's not here, uh, was present at my ordination back in September, uh, and he was kind enough to lay hands on me without gripping my neck saying, what are y'all doing ordaining this man? So he did grant his approval, I think, to the, uh, my ordination to ministry, so I'm... Just thankful for that. Uh, So also one other thing, I'm getting over something of a cold right now. I have been downing Hall's mints like they are uh, part of a Dutch Reformed worship service. And so uh, hopefully the clicking is not going to be too distracting and it will be gone within a few minutes. Um, But if you would, pray with me right now, uh, just for myself as we begin to get started. Father, uh, we come before you thankful for this morning. I, I just ask for this time for you to um, bring us into your presence, that we are uh, our, uh, our spirits and our hearts are drawn to your word, that we are receptive towards the things that you have to teach us here, this story uh, where we witness your son um, demonstrating something of the kingdom and what uh, this gospel means for us as your people and for a world who is watching and waiting. Uh, We love you and give you this time in your name. Amen. Uh, In terms of uh, ministry to state, I actually, earlier this week, visited uh, y'all's Thursday night Bible study, as you guys are going through Van Drunen's Two Kingdoms, and so it's been fun to sit in a little bit on that conversation and and hear, as you guys work through political theology and what it might mean to be men and women living in D.C., thinking about what is God's design for government and for... Uh, this institution he has given us. But as you just heard, our text for this morning is John 2, 1 through 12. It's the wedding at Cana. This is one of my favorite stories in the Gospel of John. And it's probably a story that we're all familiar with, or probably heard a number of times. And probably not just people seated in this sanctuary, but probably people in American culture in general. People may not be able to tell you exactly where in the Bible to find that time that Jesus turned water into wine, but they know that the Bible says it happened. It's a story that has captured the imaginations of people throughout the centuries. In his great work The Brothers Karamazov, Fyodor Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist includes an entire chapter dedicated to this story, the story a chapter titled Cana of Galilee where the author meditates on God's desire to bring joy to men's hearts as displayed in this miracle. More recently, maybe more pop culture relevantly, because I don't know if that's a word, uh, Miranda Lambert, she's saying, well, I know Jesus, he drank wine, and I bet we'd get along just fine. That's quite a spread we got there. We got Russian literature in the 19th century to country western music in the 21st. So clearly, Jesus has a range of artistic appeal. What we'll see in this passage is that the actions of Jesus are about so much more than wine and weddings. His actions are set within a framework of God's eternal plan. This sign demonstrates that only Jesus meets our deepest needs. What we'll hopefully see by the end of this sermon is that every person at the wedding needed what only Jesus himself, in himself, could provide. And that is a true refreshment. In light of this, we'll look at three things. We'll look at the embarrassing situation that was unfolding, the miracle itself, and the realization of true refreshment. So the embarrassing situation, the miracle itself, and true refreshment realized. So as we begin, one of the things to note is that this wedding featured a moment of nearly great embarrassment. I say nearly, but we could just as well say that this actually was a very embarrassing moment, but it only wasn't revealed because Jesus intervened to prevent the embarrassment from taking place within the crowd, the, the wedding guests who were gathered. And this, of course, was not the first wedding where something embarrassing happened, and it won't be the last. I'm sure that someone here could provide a story or even multiple stories. There's a potluck after, and so if we want to, during that potluck, share embarrassing wedding stories, maybe we could. Things we've seen or been a part of ourselves, we can do that then. But rather opening things for uh, share time now, I'll provide an example from my own life. I'll offer myself up here. It was a wedding season after my senior year of college. Uh, My friends and I had recently graduated from Texas A&M University down in College Station, Texas. And those who had been dating, of course, began to get married. Ring by spring is a very real thing in that part of the country. And so there was a wedding that was at a chapel outside of Houston. And before the ceremony began, the pastor stood up. And he said, and this isn't super typical, at least at this time, he said, would everyone please turn off their cell phones before the service begins? I heard what he said. I I acknowledged that he had said it. But, you know, that's fine. He can tell other people to turn off their cell phones, but I'm smart enough to know that all I need to do is mute it, and we should be good to go. So I ignore the pastor. (laughs) Don't turn off my phone. And as the music intros and the bridal recession starts making their way to the front to stand before the altar, a phone begins to chime. Immediately, I realize it was me. A cold sweat, of course, breaks over my body. I'm sitting around a bunch of friends. And everybody knows that it's me. They know where it's coming from. And I'm fumbling for my phone. And as I'm doing that, no one, like, uh, explicitly looks at me. No one like totally turns their head, but they kinda do the slide of the eye thing. They kinda look over like, what is wrong with you? Like we knew that you would do this kind of stuff. We thought you were gonna grow up though. Why haven't you grown up, Will? Um, And eventually I got it muted. So eventually I found it, I pulled it out. It was like a knockoff Blackberry. So I was turning it off. What had happened, so just to defend myself, I did turn off the ringer. It was not a phone call that was coming through, but it was an alarm. I think I must have set a afternoon nap time that I had been planning to take and had forgotten to turn off my alarm at the wedding. And so afterwards, a friend came up to me. and He goes, man, that was, that was something. Pastors rarely do that anymore. Pastors don't often tell people to actually turn off their cell phones. And I was just like, thank you, Tucker. I really appreciate that. I'm aware that like I have egregiously sinned against this wedding. I didn't apologize to the bride and groom. I don't know if they ever figured it out. Um, And even though there was a pretty decent amount of embarrassment during that situation, and if I were to bring it up to my friends, I'm sure they'd remember it even more intensely than as I've just told it, it was nothing compared to what was happening in this story. A first-century wedding like the one described here was a long-lasting affair. Family and friends, people from the village would gather for days to celebrate the union of this couple. While people gathered and feasted, danced and celebrated, the wine was not just a feature, but an expectation. It was essential to the event. So to run out of drink would be more than an inconvenience. It would be a great embarrassment, which is just where we find ourselves, on the verge of a great embarrassment. At this moment of crisis, Jesus' mother comes to him. We don't know how she learned about the unfolding fiasco. Perhaps she noticed that the pitchers on the tables were running low. Maybe she was helping a friend in the kitchen and heard mumblings among the guests saying, there's no more wine, there's no more wine. Whatever it was, either way, Mary decided that it was appropriate for herself to interject herself at this time. She made her way to Jesus, approached him with a remark that on its face is neither a question or a command, but simply a kind a remark. It's the kind of statement that only a mother can make, I think. They have no wine. You've probably heard something like this before on the phone or at your house. Honey, we're out of milk. Honey, there's no more bread. It's a sort of observational comment that's stated as a matter of fact, but is really a request. There is an expectation that the need which has arisen can and should be met by the one who is addressed. Now, for husbands and sons, daughters and wives, this sort of we have no more bread comment is made. We generally know what can be done about it. We can get in our cars or we can walk or drive to the grocery store. We can get a loaf of bread or a gallon of milk or maybe just a half gallon of milk with the prices of inflation. Maybe that's what we're limiting ourselves to. But here it's not completely clear what Mary was expecting Jesus to do. We're told at the end of the story that this was the first sign that Jesus had performed. Mary, as far as we can tell from Scripture, did not know Jesus could perform miracles. So what was in Mary's heart and mind? We cannot be sure, but we'll come back to this at the end of the story. Whatever it was, Mary believed that Jesus could meet the need that she brought him. There is, of course, the legendary response of Jesus in this passage, woman, oh boy, Let's just say uh, that I have made a habit of not referring to my mother as woman and it has gone well for me. Uh, I'd recommend, though I wouldn't ever bind your conscience against using that term. However, if we look at this passage, Mary doesn't seem to be upset and Jesus is referring to her in this way. Well, why wasn't she? We must be clear that Jesus was not in any way at all addressing his mother in a tone of condescension or disrespect. That would be a violation of the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, which would be a sin. And we know from Second Corinthians 5.21 that Jesus was without any sin. So what is correctly translated woman was used differently in Jesus' day than ours. A theologian, uh, biblical commentator D.A. Carson offers a number of translations in his commentary on John. The closest he suggests is ma'am, but not in the endearing southern way that which some of us were raised. I will say as a caveat, I don't know what the northern equivalent is or the west coast equivalent is for ma'am. I have called peers who are from the north ma'am and had some kind of frustration elicited on their part, so forgive us southerners for using terms that are not appreciated by people in the north. Uh, we We mean well by it. But this is a more formal, cultural address. It might be better understood that Jesus, Mary's son, was addressing her in a way to distance her from himself. And this is something that apparently she needed. It's possible that by this time in her life, Mary was a widow. Perhaps Joseph had already died. He is not mentioned from this point on in any of the Gospels. And as with many mothers in the first century, Jesus as the eldest son would have been someone that Mary had to depend hard on and lean hard on for her survival. He would have been her source of financial, social, and cultural stability. He would have been a protector and a provider for her. And with that in mind, it would only be natural for her to go to her oldest son and ask for help. But what we see in his response, and as the story continues to unfold, Jesus wanted Mary to understand that he came to do so much more than meet her social, cultural, and material needs. Jesus was lovingly bringing his mother to a place Where she could understand that she needed Jesus not as her son, but as the Son of God. Another way to say it is that Mary's felt need was not her actual need. It was close, it hinted at the actual, the real, but it wasn't fully it. So there's a tension that is building within this story. Jesus went on to say, what has this to do with me? My hour has not yet come. One pastor in the PCA has suggested that at this time, Mary caught Jesus in a moment where his mind was wandering. Like so many people do at weddings, they are either imagining back to their own wedding or thinking forward to the wedding that they, Lord willing, will one day have if that is what they desire. Perhaps Jesus was thinking of his own wedding day, the hour of, the day for which he came when the bride would be united to the bridegroom. There is no doubt that Jesus was looking forward throughout his lively ministry to the time when he would be glorified by the Father. And beyond that, to one day when he would receive the bride as the true bridegroom. Meaning, though, that even if he did go on to solve the current wine problem, and it would be the greatest wedding reception in the history of the world, it still would not be the point. There was something bigger. There was something more to come. In Scripture, of course, weddings are very, very important. There was a wedding in the Garden of Eden when uh, Eve was given to Adam, and there will be a wedding at the end of time, when Jesus receives his church. The Bible is wedding-shaped, you might say. And what God is doing is pursuing reconciliation with mankind to himself, and the final consummation of that will be the wedding of the bridegroom and the bride. We don't have time, it would take us a little afield to go into the topic of weddings in the Bible, a biblical theology or systematic theology of weddings But I do want to say that this shape of scripture is one of the reasons why Christians, why we ought to care about marriage. Why we ought to honor it, cultivate it, cherish it, and protect it. Marriage is given by God to be between one man and one woman for life, and it can serve as a window into the future of what God is planning to do. Witnessing marriages In our congregation, not just wedding, but marriages in our congregation and church ought to be a source of encouragement. I'm speaking from observation and listening to people. I understand that marriages are hard a lot of times, that they are not always easy, that they take work, that they are refining, that the Lord uses them to sanctify us. But at its essence, we know that marriage is a good thing. We don't have to go into all the ways that we can honor it, cultivate it, cherish, and protect marriage. And not everyone has to get married. Not everyone is called to marriage. But whether we are married or single, we should seek to do those things, such as honoring, cherishing, cultivating it, to those marriages that are around us. And so... Firmly understanding his place in redemptive history, Jesus looked forward to that glorious day. And then Mary told the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's a sort of first century, honey, we're out of bread, I'll call the store and see if they have any. Now, to the second part, the miracle itself. There are some more liberal scholars out there that if you come across, they'll suggest that Jesus didn't actually perform a miracle here in John 2, but he did something of a a sleight of hand, following the presupposition that because miracles cannot happen, Jesus must not have performed any. They then suggest that Jesus merely diluted the little bit of wine that was left and passed it around to the guests. Then further stretching the credulity of their interpretation, they say that when the master of the feast tasted the wine, in verse 9, and comments on it, that he's actually speaking tongue-in-cheek. I don't know about you guys, but that seems like some pretty fancy footwork to me, uh, and it also not only that is, that, is that somewhat fancy footwork and seems to stretch the bounds of, of believability. It goes against the express purpose for which John is composing his gospel. John wrote this book serving as a witness to the works of God. An old man at the time of this writing, John understood his role as a seasoned and veteran pastor. Loving and caring for the flock that he had been given, his gospel was written as the true account of the mission and meaning of the Messiah. In addition to this, Jesus' miracle perfectly fits in to demonstrate what it was that he came to do. This was not some arbitrary, problem-solving party trick. It was a perfectly enacted demonstration of who he was and what he was about. We'll look at a few key details real fast, and hopefully this demonstrates how it is so. So, One of the first things that we see in this passage, if you look, is that there are six stone water jars, and each of these contained about 20 to 30 gallons of liquid. Now, (coughs) excuse me. Together, that would be about 120 to 180 gallons. I have in my house, you guys may picture them, uh, this Yeti bucket that's a five-gallon cooler, basically, I don't know why Yeti made it. It doesn't make as much sense to me as a cooler. It seems that it would need a lid. But it's like a five-gallon glorified paint bucket, more or less. Uh, Imagine having 25 to 35 of those stacked up on top of each other. That is the amount of uh, container that we have here. So this is an enormous quantity. The second is that the jars were made of stone. In that time, the material out of which a pot or a jar was made determined its ability to be used again. For example, because a clay pot would be more porous, it would be broken and discarded after it came into contact with a ritually impure substance. Stone pots and jars, on the other hand, could be washed and reused due to their material. So we have two observations here. One, there's a massive amount of quantity and the second, they were ceremonial jars. And together, I think they tell us two things. One is that our God is a magnanimous God. Our God is a magnanimous and greatly generous God. And the second is that the time of ceremonial cleansing was completely fulfilled in Jesus. I haven't asked him ahead of time of this for this, but uh, I will put it on your resident Hebrew scholar Reverend Luke Gossett to explain the Old Testament ceremonial uh, ceremonies for purification. Luke, just add that to your list of things afterwards. But suffice it to say for now that our cleansing comes from Christ. The contamination that would distance us from God is completely washed away in the person and work of Jesus. The ceremonial law washings and cleansings were forever and fully fulfilled by Jesus himself. He who was living water would wash us white as snow. And then, in response to that, as if that wasn't enough, the abundance into which he has invited us surpasses anything that we could possibly ask or imagine that is the lavish goodness of God, surpasses all that was offered before and all that the world has to offer. One quick uh, comment I wanna make before moving on to our third point. Um, I said this earlier, but unless Jesus intervened into this wedding, uh, unless Jesus helped solve this crisis, this embarrassment that was unfolding, Uh, the situation would have become disastrous. Shame and dishonor would have followed the family. But Jesus did intervene. Uh, And the master of the feast, in response to Jesus' miracle, went to the bridegroom. But he went to the wrong bridegroom. And as it turns out, he lavished praise upon him. Uh, I'm sure that the... uh, We'll make it the, the, the wrong bridegroom was somewhat surprised by this interaction as the master of ceremonies comes to him. And he says, oh, this is so wonderful. What a wonderful man you are. You save the good wine for now. No one ever does this. It's kind of funny to maybe imagine how this bridegroom would have responded. Maybe a little shocked, taken aback. First thought, what are you saying? The second like, oh, there's opportunity for praise? Sure, I'll jump on that. So he says, oh, yes, of course, I did. Yes, that that was all my idea. Yes, I, I did save the good wine until now. It was all my idea, and it was a brilliant idea. Hopefully other people will follow suit in the future. You know, this bridegroom was given credit for something in which he played no actual part, that his lack of preparation was made up for by the perfect miracle of Christ, And while he was receiving all that credit, the true bridegroom slipped out of the party due to his mother and brothers and disciples. To sum up quite simply and succinctly, brothers and sisters, the world has run out of wine. It has no true pleasures, no gifts, no prizes or banquet food to offer us. Behind any government, any business, any endeavor, family friendship you name it the list could go on and on that presents good to the world is a the true bridegroom who has allowed them to take credit for a time but there will come a day when he returns and all good and glory will be seen as coming only from him and it is our job as disciples as servants who know where the good wine really comes from, to point people to him and to have someone to tell you about. It is our chance to use this as an opportunity to reach people with the gospel. So to recap, we have a problem. There's an unfolding embarrassment. There is a miracle addressing that problem. And now we go to our third point. As we come to this final point, we go all the way back to the beginning of the story. At the beginning, we're given a list of characters who are present. And the first person mentioned in the list of characters is Mary, the mother of Jesus. We are first told that she was there. Then we're told that Jesus was there. Then we're told that the disciples were there. In this ordering, I think that John is really trying to tell us something, to draw our attention. I think he wants to point something out by listing her first. In terms of men and women in the New Testament, we know quite a bit about Mary, actually. We know that she found favor with God, that she was a family member to Elizabeth and John the Baptist. We know that she was poetic, very thoughtful. We believe that she was young, When she married Joseph and gave birth to Jesus, her firstborn son, we know that she had other children and, as was mentioned earlier, might have been a widow at the time of this wedding. We also get the sense that Mary, while favored by God, did not receive the respect from friends and neighbors that was her due. In another gospel we read, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Those weren't words of praise or of recognizing uh, a good family. Those were words of scoffing and of mockery we might wonder how much Mary suffered as the mother of Jesus. Not because of any direct fault on her part, but because of the derision of others. A mother at a young age, did people whisper rumors about her when she walked down the street to get water for the day? Did people run the numbers on their hands and figure that it was less than nine months from the moment of marriage to Joseph, to birth of Jesus? At the time of this wedding, it had been 30 years since Jesus was born. What had life been like for her during that time? Was she ever invited to weddings or parties? Apart from Elizabeth, did she have any friends? We know that she depended heavily on Jesus, that she looked to him Why was that? When I read this passage, I wonder if this was the first wedding that she had attended since she was a little girl. I wonder if Mary came to Jesus in John 2 thinking to herself, Jesus can fix this. Jesus can make this situation better. He can do this thing that I need him to do, and at last I will be seen, I will be vindicated, I will be honored. All the years of waiting and being overlooked would be undone and fixed, and she would at last be respected by the community. Who among us can blame her or think that we would be any different in a situation like that? Here's a woman who for 30 years was whispered about and mocked, and all she wanted was for her son to restore her honor to the community honor which to a degree she was due is that such a bad thing I don't get the sense that Mary's motives were wholly bad in this story more misplaced certainly misplaced and out of order she thought that she needed something from Jesus and didn't understand that she needed Jesus himself when Jesus looked at his mother and he said to her what has this to do with me, he knew more of his mother's heart than she realized. Jesus was not at all oblivious to her pain and suffering. When she went to him asking for a solution to the situation, he saw into her heart, mother, is this about me or is this about something you want from me? If she thought she needed to be accepted and have social standing within the community, Jesus knew what it was she truly needed. And as it was on the third day of the wedding that we are introduced to this situation, so it was for a few days that Jesus went away to Capernaum with his mother and brother and disciples. A few days at a wedding where there was nearly an embarrassment and the wrong bridegroom gets all the credit, then a few days in a little old fishing village called Capernaum with the true answer, the true miracle for our souls, the true blessed refreshment. (coughs) Excuse me. So and as we wrap up, I want to just ask a few questions. What is it that you think you need Do you feel that there is some love that is being withheld from you? Is it recognition for some work that you have done that is not being seen? Is there forgiveness from someone that you've wronged and you've sought to reconciliation but they just won't call you back? Is it more hours in the day, more money in the bank? Is it confidence in the future? None of these are illegitimate. None of these are wrong in themselves. They're not even unimportant. But Jesus loves our souls primarily, first and foremost, by pointing us to himself, by pointing us to himself as the true bridegroom. As Jesus did with Mary and his disciples and his brothers, his followers, so he says to us, and he says, oh, Christian, I see your pain and suffering, your hurt and your longing. I know what you're feeling, And I am here to be the answer to the true longings of your soul. So come away with me. Come to a still place for a little while. Sit with me. Be still, for I am here and I am what you need. Jesus secured salvation for us on the cross in the hour of his glory. He is a miracle worker of lavish abundance He is here for us and wants to give us what we need himself. Would you pray with me? Father, we uh, give you thanks that you would send your son to take the form of a servant to, in his life, show us what it is we truly need to be the true answer for our souls. Pray throughout the rest of this day and this week that we fix our eyes on on your son, that we allow the Holy Spirit to be at work in us, to transform us from one degree of glory to the next, uh, that we find our satisfaction in who you've given to us, your son Jesus, in your name, amen.